0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan. Last week, the Pardons Board decided to halve the corrupt former Prime Minister Najib Razak's prison sentence. It was an anxiety riddle week filled with speculation, news reports that were subsequently retracted, silent politicians, curveballs, and a severe lack of transparency on the part of the government as the public waited with bated breath for the decisions from the Pardons Board. It's a shame that Malaysians had to find out what was going on from the foreign press. The public response to the decision by the Pardons Board has been loud and angry. Former Damansara MP Tony Poir is under investigation under the Sedition Act for his remarks concerning the Pardons Board decision. The NGO Berset held a press conference demanding that the government deliver reforms or face the wrath of the people on the streets. Just to keep in mind, Najib still has a whole host of other cases pertaining to 1MDB and more, currently ongoing in the courts. So on today's show, I'll be discussing all of this. First off with Dr. Francis Hutchinson. He's the Senior Fellow at the Regional Economic Studies Programme and Coordinator of the Malaysian Studies Programme at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. And on the second half of the show, I'll be speaking to Sevan Sami, Executive Director of SWARAM, specifically on the Sedition Act. Francis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just start with some overall thoughts. What did you think of the Pardons Board decision to reduce Najib's
1: sentence? Before we go there, we can take a a step back. And the first is, of course, we know Najib is a very influential person and he has a considerable amount of resources at his disposal. Nonetheless, we must also recognize that he was charged, he was convicted, there was a legal procedure that began, of course, at the High Court, went to the Court of Appeal, then went to the federal court, and he was imprisoned, and relatively quickly. Of course, this took four years, but I think for many people, you know, they anticipate that justice happens immediately. In actual fact, it takes a long time, right? And there are a lot of steps And particularly if you have someone that has resources and connections that can appeal and so on, these things take longer. So I think we must recognize that as something, I think, very positive. Now, coming to the pardon board's decision, and my interpretation is that the decision is well crafted. Now, you can agree with it or you can disagree with it, but it's well crafted and it seeks to obtain or attain rather several objectives. So the first is, I think, it is a move to promote reconciliation and recognize grievances on the part of various groups. Now, it doesn't mean it's successful in doing that, but it wants to do this. And and I can kind of see, if you will, the hand of the former ago his kind of style. So if we go back to November 2022, we look at the formation of the unity government, it was very much about consensus building, right? So what do various parties want? We have East Malaysia, we have West Malaysia, we have non-Malays, we have Malays, we have other groups. We need to bring them together and promote national unity. So I can I can see this, right? And of course, we know we have people pushing for Najib to be pardoned and his party is in government. And you have other people taking a hard line against Najib and their parties are also in government. So resolving this, if you will, he wants to promote reconciliation as well as stability within the government. And I think also once we start looking at the details of the declaration and the reduction of the sentence, I think there are a couple of other interesting aspects. So the first is, as you know, the initial sentence was 12 years, this has been reduced to six years. So. August 2028 would be when he can come out. Right Now, parliament needs to be dissolved by December 2027 and elections held shortly thereafter. In addition, uh, Prof. Shad Salim Faruqi made the observation that there isn't a provision for early release in the pardons board declaration. Right, So it doesn't mention he's eligible for early release. So... It looks like this discussion that he could come out earlier, August 2026, doesn't look to be possible. In addition, there is this uh, aspect of the fine of 50 million ringgit. So it also says that if this fine is not paid, then there'll be an additional year of imprisonment for a release in August 2029. So I don't know how this would work if he is eligible for early release and then he pays the $50 Could he come out in August 2026? I don't know, but it does look to be 2028 or 2029. Right. So this means it's going to be difficult for Najib to play a role in campaigning in politics. We also know that if you have been convicted of a crime above a certain threshold... You are ineligible to run for public office after you have been released from prison, and that is for five years following the date of your release. So then it looks like that if we follow these stipulations, no further changes are made. Najib will not be able to run directly for office until 2033 or 34 when he's about 80. So, it looks like once we look at this, you know, the measure contains, yes, an element of forgiveness, but it also seems to be crafted with the objective of Najib at the margin of active politics for a long time.
0: What are the potential repercussions of Najib's
1: reduced sentence for Malaysian politics? So, I think it comes back to the issue of compromise, and Mm. I think you would agree, nobody's happy. right? And is that good or is that bad? Let's just say everyone's sort of dissatisfied in an equal measure, but no one's prepared to tip the apple cart. So if we look at the pro camp, we know that Najib, his families and his immediate supporters are, to quote, very, very disappointed. But if we look a little bit, Beyond that, within UMNO, you have people like Ashraf Wajdi Dusuki, the UMNO secretary general, saying that the party is not happy with the decision, but it will respect it, and there are no plans to pull out of government. You've also had a number of uh, UMNO leaders from Johor recently say, you know, it's not just about one person, there's a government, there's the whole issue of the Malay community that they're fighting for, so this should be taken into account. Then on the other side, of course, you've just mentioned Tony Poa, who has criticized this very strongly, of course, he's uh, a former DAP MP. But you also have cabinet members, other DAP members like Anthony Loke, secretary general, and you even have Hassan Karim, a PKR backbencher, who have stated that they respect the pardon board's decision. So you see the two sides. But I'd also say, actually, The story isn't over yet, and in many ways, the can is just being kicked down the road. Because just yesterday, we learned that Najib's legal team is considering requesting another pardon from the new king. And then, as you mentioned, on the other side, you have additional charges and cases against Najib pertaining to 1MDB, and for much, much bigger quantities of money than was involved in SRC. So. Are these cases going to proceed?
0: How will this impact, um, Francis, the credibility of the Madani government? Because this has been essentially the DNA of Pakatan Harapan, especially Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim, PKR. They've been chanting reformasi since 1998, a good 25 years. Sure. So
1: I think, I guess there there are a couple of things uh, mm-hmm we need to take into account the first is, as you very rightly said, you know, you've had many of these causes and specific commitments that have been reiterated for a very long period of time. And, you know, we have, if you like, a, a, a crusade or a campaign to change the rules of the game. But it looks like, and the questions are, you know, are the rules being changed? And then the second thing is, you know, our discussion now about the reduction of Najib's sentence needs to be looked at in light of the DNAA against Saeed Hamidi that took place in September last year. So as you know, the attorney general opted to not proceed with the case. So for many voters, this really does raise the question of whether the current government is committed to combating corruption. Um, So I think What will happen going forward is that more than ever before, people will be looking at what happens with the other court cases against Najib. Are they gonna go slowly? Are they going to go quickly? And very specifically, are we going to see the attorney general making any controversial decisions? A bit like we saw with the DNAA against Sahid before. Now, uh, we were chatting just now uh, off air about the recent news that we've heard about what uh, Najib's lawyer has been saying, that actually within the process, it does seem that the Agong was more favorable towards a full pardon. And it was actually the pardons board members that were not in favor. And in the end, this is some sort of compromise. Right. Uh, this, this kind of feeds into a narrative that I think people in government have been saying that this is the prerogative of the agon. And from my understanding of the legality, this is actually true. But going forward, you know, what the attorney general decides to do, whether the other cases are allowed to go to their conclusion before a conviction, which is where a pardon comes in, this is where people will be really, really, I think, scrutinizing. But I think, you know, there are other, perhaps other bigger issues at. Uh, at, at um, We now have had the Madani government in power for more than a year. The August, you know, state elections that you and I did a lot of uh, work on are now in the back backdrop. And now we have a period of time for the Madani administration to begin to enact changes that result in tangible improvements for people's lives. If we go to uh, opinion polls and surveys consistently. It is about cost of living. It is about depleted savings. It is about higher, higher prices of goods. Um, so I think you know this is also probably more than any issue to do with Najib's pardon at the forefront of people's minds. And this, I think, you know very much the discourse is now we've given a lot of time for the Madani government to get installed. And now I think we need to see some tangible change. Francis,
0: do you think a lot of the anger that um, people, uh, the general public, seems to be expressing right now um, is, of course, there is no doubt that you know Najib is this big villainous character within the psyche of the Malaysian population. So, of course, there's on that one hand there is that aspect, um, you know, seeing him receive a reduced um, sentence um, angers the public. On the other hand, I'm wondering. If it's also due to poor communication and and transparency on the on the part of the government, because we are you know as I mentioned in the introduction, we are talking about the the entire there's an entire drama you know last week from Utusan Malaysia you know publishing and then retracting their article and then politicians remaining silent, Malaysians finding out about what happened from the foreign press and then within the the government um, you know the prime minister says um, Najib is uh, received a a. a sort of a re- reduced sentence because of his contributions to the country. And then, you know, got some people are saying, no, this is the, the Agong's fault. And then some people are saying, no, this is the pardons board. And the Agong cannot act, um, you know, without the advice of the pardons board. And then yesterday, another curveball when Najib's lawyer, Shafi, um, you know, whether it was his intention or not, he essentially said that the pardons board, which has Harapan members in it. Um, their stance was not to reduce the sentence, right? So we we are learning all these things in bits and pieces and, and, you know, not in an official, transparent manner. I'm wondering
1: if that adds to the anger that people feel. Without question. Um, This is a a very controversial decision. Um, And then I think there are a number of, of factors. One is, of course, the position of the Agong due respect that needs to be paid. To the Algon, that's one. Um, then you also have, as as we've just been discussing, a unity government with uh, supporters and detractors of Najib within the same administration. And then even within, you know, the the inner circle of decision makers, even the unprecedented nature of this event, how do you spin it? How do you how do you explain it? So, you know, you're going to have different tactical approaches to your communication strategy. And I think also, you know, we, we do know that this is a coalition of coalitions, right? It is actually a group of quite different parties and coalitions that come together into a whole. And they have their own perspective and styles of, of governing. So it a lot less cohesive than I think uh, people would anticipate. So this also adds to the unique communication dysfunctions right. or mishaps.
0: On the show with me today is Dr. Francis Hutchinson of the ICS Yusof Ishaq Institute. We will continue this discussion after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashren Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Francis Hutchinson of the ICS Yusof Ishaq Institute. And we're talking about um, the Pardons Board of Malaysia um, basically halving Najib's sentence, jail sentence of the SRC International case where he received a 12-year sentence and now it has been reduced to six years. This conversation is also available on podcasts. You can look us up on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to search beyond the ballot box. If you're listening to this on Spotify, do give us a follow and drop us a review. I would really, really appreciate that. So Francis, some issues in Malaysia um, may impact one group or another, one religion or another, one race or another. But I see Najib, as sort of a unifying force of sorts, in the sense that when I went down to the ground in, in Klantan and Trunganu prior to the six-state elections that took place in 2023, now, I sensed palpable anger um, that, um, you know, uh, Dr. Sri Azaid Hamidi, AMNO um, president, was made the deputy prime minister of Malaysia. Um, some also expressed that they voted for pass, not necessarily because... They love Pas, although many people in that region really do. They have very good grassroots and all of that. But a lot of people also said that it was mostly because they were sick of Amno, especially um, Najib, you know, and, and his um, um, leadership. Unlike some issues that are seen through the lens of Malay, non-Malay type of thing, I sense that this issue is going to anger or has angered. You know, a lot of Malaysians, despite ethnicity, religion, region, you know, East Coast, West Coast, um, how do you see it? Do you, do you get the same sense as well?
1: I, I do, but I think there's another narrative that is prevalent in mm. the public sphere. And that is Najib is popular among the malay base, particularly UMNO. Uh, UMNO Grassroots, and that by releasing him, this will revitalize and reinv- oh, and enable it to recapture its former glory. Uh, I disagree with that. I agree with you. And actually, what I'd like to do is, is explore this a little bit. Hmm. And so I think that Najib is very influential, very popular within omno Machinery. So we know that in UMNO, power concentrates in two levels, in the top, particularly in the office of the UMNO president, but then also at the division level, right? So the the party heads of the different parliamentary constituencies. And Najib was PM for nine years, and during this period, he had a reputation of taking very, very good care of division heads. So I think these people in the party infrastructure, have spent their lives in Omno. And were he to return, I think they think, of course, it would revitalize things and help the party return to its glory. But personally, I would argue, actually, he is toxic for many non-Malays and an increasingly large group of Malay voters. And I think If we look at the numbers, and I'd like to talk a little bit about Johor, I think we can see this. So in 2018, of course, we have the general election, and we have 582,000 voters in Johor that voted for BN. Now, this is important because this is the height of anger against Najib, the height of anger against 1MDB, right? So this is when they lose at the national level, and at the state level. So this is like a for UMNO support in Johor. Now, we go to March 2022, and we must remember in the intervening period, we had automatic voter registration. We had undi 18 We had the size of the electorate really increased by several hundred years. And this is the height of Bosco, right? So he's come... You know, he's reinvented himself. We have the motorcycle and all of that kind of discussion. He has well-publicized visits to Johor. In the March 2022 election, BN got 599,000 votes, only 17,000 votes more. So what does this tell you? Young people don't really care. People that didn't vote before don't really care. Bosco, not really additional votes. And then we fast-forward again to November 2022, and guess what? We have 598,000 voters come out. Almost the same number as March 2022. This is UMNO's machinery. These are all the tents, all the, the grassroots, all the ladies, the juanita going out, getting people, mobilizing them. So you can see it's the same number of people. And this is with Najib behind bars already because he went to jail August 2022. So we look at the three moments in time. Height of anger against 1MDB. Height of Bosco. Bosco in jail. Numbers are the same. So this means that Malaysians have already factored him in. If you don't like him, you don't like him. You like him, you like him. But on this, the middle ground voters, really you don't have any. And he's not going to help you bring people in. He's not going to help you get more voters for so, in many ways, he is
2: toxic.
1: Hmm. Now, the Pakatan
0: Harapan Coalition um, doesn't have a, on, you know, they never had a very cohesive socioeconomic ideology. You know, they never broadly, like, you know, came on and said, we Harappan are socialists, for example, we are leftists, you mm-hmm. know, in, in, in that kind of thing, right? Um, it's a combination of ideologies, a combination of different schools of thought. Um, that all came together to fight corruption, that was the glue that held the coalition together, anti-corruption um, as are, and, and reform, right? That, that was, at least from my vantage point, I see it as that was essentially what their ideology, quote-unquote, was. So from my vantage point, I'm, I'm curious, what does it mean for this coalition um, who strictly, um, you know, was the, the gravitational force was, you know, anti-corruption, uh, reformacy and all of that. What does it mean if the biggest or one of the biggest kleptocrats in the world receives a discount during their era in power? I mean, it's not necessarily their fault. Like I said, it's a complex thing. The royals pardon, you know, it's, it's difficult to see where exactly the buck stops. But the perception is this happened during their tenureship, their time in power. What does that mean? What does that tell so, you?
1: So I think if, if you can, I think we look at the two different parts of your question. So mm-hmm. the first one is about the ideology. And I agree, anti-corruption, and I would probably add a bit more around it in the sense of good governance. So, yes. you know, Absolutely. less authoritarianism, dismantling, you know, the controls that were really concentrated in the hands of the executive you know, more checks and balances, more transparency, you know, these things of which, of course, anti-corruption is very... So I think, you know, part of your question is, why aren't we seeing more of this? Not just the specific decision, but more of the movement on good governance and changing the rules of the game. So I think, you know, I'd like to highlight maybe a couple of things. So the first is, I don't think the period in time following the Sheraton move in early 2020 and the November 2022 elections were well used by Pakistan. So I think a lot of time, which of course is understandable, was, you know, yes, our democratic mandate was taken away from us. Agree. But then what about using this time in opposition to come up with a very clear plan of action? What is going to in a short period of time to change the rules of the game. And I think, relatedly, when we see the naming of the first cabinet, one of the things that really struck me was you only had one minister return to his same portfolio. That was Anthony Locke. You would have thought that, hey, you know, we've got these good performers. We know now who's good and who's less good. We're going to capitalize on our A team put them there so we can hit the ground running. Of course, as we know, that didn't happen. I think a second thing is, um, and here I think we go to the personality and, and the way that uh, Anwar Ibrahim thinks, and this has actually been brought out really nicely in a recent book by Kubotek on Anwar Ibrahim. It goes into his thinking and all the rest. And and he says that you know a, a key focus on of Anwar is ennobling malaysia right so lifting people from you know increasing their well-being but also increasing their self-worth and their perhaps can i say philosophical outlook and these All sorts right. of things now this is very laudable but the thing is it's hard to operationalize and it's hard for people to understand and you also have A lot of the planning behind the 12th Malaysia plan and and all the very detailed plans that the government is trying to work with are done by civil servants that think in a different way. So you're trying to blend these very high-level concepts with operational mundane realities, which is difficult. And then the last issue is that we are in a new phase of Malaysian politics where one coalition Cannot by itself attain a parliamentary majority. So we need coalitions of coalitions. So this means that your prime minister has to play a three level game. You have to keep your party happy. You have to keep your coalition partners happy. And then you have to keep your partner coalitions happy. So this dilutes what you want to do. Also means that when you come time, it comes time to name your members of cabinet you don't have a completely free hand in who you want to name and all of these things. So it leads to a more diluted effect when you, you know, choose your cabinet members. Okay, now coming to your second question, what does it mean if, you know, he's released from power? So he has, sorry, released from prison. He hasn't been released. And my feeling is that the current political context can tahan if he serves the full six-year sentence. But if strange things happen to the other pending cases, or there's a, another pardon and he's let out even earlier, this is a different question. And I think this is where Anwar's support base would thunder. You would have, on one hand, you know, people like Percy protesting and all the rest. But also, more importantly, your average pH supporter just wouldn't turn up to vote.
0: How are you approaching and analyzing the current government's predicament? And what I mean by that is the most activist-minded people will say that this government is not moving fast enough. They are compromising on their principles. Um, you know, I've mentioned 25 years of, um, you know, reformacy movement, you know, they, they have taken various um, compromise, they've thrown marginalized groups under the bus. Um, some might say they are pandering um, to the ultra-conservatives in the name of managing temperatures, so on and so forth. On the other hand, the most ardent supporters of Anwar Ibrahim and Pakatan Harapan will say that this is the realities on the ground Realpolitik, as they like to say. And it is, you know, it's just the situation at hand. It's a unity government. Compromises have to be made. We just need to support them, um, give them time. um, And they'll just do the best that they possibly can, given the arrangement. How are you approaching and analysing this predicament that the government is in?
1: So I think you're you're correct. You've nicely laid out a kind of two- tensions. Hmm. So if you, I guess, look at it from the long sweep of history, we've had a real move away from a period of Barisan national domination. And then we went to a system where you had two coalitions competing against each other. Uh, So BN and then PR and then PH. And now we're in a very fluid situation But we haven't seen violence. We haven't seen, you know, large-scale civil disturbance, uh, which I think really speaks very well about the country. So I think in the, you know, long sweep of history, I think that this period, as long as it goes, you know, along this trajectory, is broadly positive. Nonetheless, I think, as we've just discussed, when we look at, you know, where I would Fault them is not so much in compromising, but in not respecting time. I, I do feel that there isn't a sense of urgency, perhaps because of these greater issues that we're, we're talking about. Um, and I think also there hasn't been a concerted move to change the rules of the game. So, what do I mean by that? We now have a situation where the prime minister has huge amounts of MPs supporting him, at least, you know, ostensibly supporting him. And it seems that every other day now, there's someone from Bersatu that you know pledges to support the unity government in return for parliamentary uh, allocations. But you know, what about things like using this two-thirds majority? To pass a parliamentary amendment like Penang did, that you've got a two term limit for PM. What about having senior officials like the Attorney General and the head of MACC report to Parliament as opposed to the Prime Minister? What about, and here I can understand, you know, if you give equal constituency allocations, you don't get these additional MPs. But I think we're now at a period of diminishing returns. And I think the government needs to look and accept that maybe in four years, maybe in eight or nine years, they are going to be in opposition. So why not strike now and change some of the rules of the game in a way that increase the quality of the institutional environment for tomorrow when they are on the other side of the fence?
0: I want to press that a little bit further because ultimately, like you said, this is more than just about one man. Um, You know, this is about a system um, that enabled someone like Najib to thrive for very long. So what reforms should be implemented concerning, you know, whether it's corruption, transparency, accountability um, and other reforms, right? Um, What are you looking at? What should the government prioritise?
1: So the first thing is, you know, I think we need to look at this in, in historical context, right? Mm-hmm. And one very important period of centralization of power uh, was during Mahathir I, right? 22 years. So during this period, really within UMNO, there were a lot of reforms that built up. I don't want to say reforms, sorry, changes that built up the power of the incumbent, right? So if you are UMNO party president, you are phenomenally powerful, and it is difficult to get rid of you, particularly if you don't want to go. So we can see, of course, Abdullah Badawi was very much a gentleman. The people in the party said they were unhappy and he stepped down. But of course, we know that that wasn't the case of, of Najib. And we can attribute this situation to measures taken by Mahathir. Similarly, him as PM, uh, you know, we could talk about depending on whether you think. Uh, the monarch should have more or less power. Certainly, he did constrain the power of the monarchy. One important check on him, as well as, of course, the judi- judiciary as well. So all of these things really kind of concentrated so much power in these two positions. Now what we're having to deal with is these two positions are taken by different people. So depending on what happens with OMNO, you know, maybe this may... Uh, be a position, or sorry, an issue or not in the future, but I think we can see within OMNO there have been worrying, exacerbating trends, like the recent dis- uh, decision in the past party election that the top two positions would not be contested. You know, things like this are worrying. So, coming to the, the PM, again, I think perhaps the simplest kind of best thing to do, and that would help rekindle. Um, This movement for reform would be this two-term limit that I think could be bipartisan, right? And does Anwar want to stay beyond two terms? I mean, in terms of age and all the rest, I think it would be a huge legacy to the country if he were to spear-lead this movement. And okay, you know, this would mean he's reelected next time. That would be his last time. Nothing wrong with that. But that would seal his legacy as a senior statesman, and if you will, really differentiate himself from uh, Ma- Dr. Doctor Mahathir that he seems to so clearly want to differentiate himself from. So this would be one simple one. I do think the equal constituency allocation would be another. Difficult in the short term, but if you have your eye on the institutional context, on your legacy, useful. Absolutely.
0: One last question for you, Francis, before we wrap up. Um, Yesterday, um, Berset held a press conference. um, And basically, you know, all eyes, um, at least on social media, within the the political nerd circle and all, everyone was on that press conference, all eyes was on that press conference. And essentially, what they said was, um, you know, they're not going to do a protest. And right now, they're not going to but but they are watching the government, right? And if the government doesn't deliver on the reforms, um, then they would not hesitate to take it to the streets. What are your thoughts on Bercy's press conference?
1: Yeah, so I I would look at two things. So the Mm -hmm. first is, you know, the reputation, prestige, perception of Bercy as someone that stands out for clean politics, for anti-corruption, for, you know, democratic reform and all the rest. And if they take to the streets, it would be a huge reputational blow for the Anwar administration because then it would look just like all the other administrations from you know 2007 until the present, right? So here we're talking about you know, the big protests in 2007, and then we have political change in state governments in 2008, and, of course, we have in 2013, and then we have about 1MDB and so on. So if they come out against or criticizing the sitting administration in terms of a blow to reputation prestige, would look very bad. Then I think there's another aspect to that, and that is that it's a little bit like the canary in the gold mine. So many of these people are themselves, have been Pakatan Harapan supporters, their family, and it's part of that you know, milieu or context. So if they come out with this, then this is very strongly suggesting that come next election, people that would traditionally vote PKR, DAP, or, or AMANA are going to stay home. Now, I think also what makes this a little bit different is, you know, the way that Anwar and PKR support base works is not quite how UMNO and PAS and probably even Bersatu works. So these other parties are structured, they're disciplined, and they have internal mechanisms for feedback. So if people are unhappy, they will channel this within the party, and it goes up to the top, and then, you know, they decide what to do. In this case, of course, it's much more organic, it ebbs and it flows, you have people that support sometimes, you know, they, they traditionally tend to support, but they don't turn up or if they need to be motivated to don't turn up. You don't have the grassroots that will go out and get people and take them to vote. And so this is indicating, if you like, it's an indirect indicator that this group of people is not showing up.
0: And on that note, Francis, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me and good to see you again. That was Dr. Francis Hutchinson, Senior Fellow at the Regional Economic Studies Program and Coordinator of the Malaysian Studies Program at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. After the break, I speak to Seven Doresami from Swaram. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dastran Johan. And I'm now joined by Seven Dore Sami. He's the executive director of SWARAM. And we're going to be discussing the Sedition Act. Seven, welcome to the show. How are you?
2: Thank you, Dashran. I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm doing good as well. Um, Former Damansara MP Tony Poir is being investigated under the Sedition Act for his Facebook post, criticizing the pardons board decision to reduce former Prime Minister Najib Abdul Razad's prison sentence. What are your overall thoughts on this investigation and using the Sedition Act to investigate him?
2: Many of us are in the same opinion as Tony Poir on the pardon board's decision. You know, it's one of the grand corruption and world-known uh, corruption case, And he already sentenced and is facing his uh, jail term now. And then went on to the pardon board and then the pardon board gave partial... Pardon as well as uh, discount on his fine so that's like unacceptable uh, and the use of sedition is definitely and clearly uh, wanted to silent uh, dissenters silent our opinion uh, on what is happening in the country and uh, this is another example uh, where the unity government tried to like reduce the criticism uh, on its government and, and the pardon board's decision because it's still considered under the unity government and the process and all that. Uh, so, um, 20 post is more like a satirical and uh, it's nothing more, nothing serious uh, on his posting. This is I only can see as a, a act of intimidation by the unity government and uh, also no difference from those uh, by the previous government's administration as well. Uh, many high-profile political uh, persons were also investigated under uh, sedition. For me, it is an act of intimidation and try to silence the criticism towards the government and the government's agency and the government's act. The criticism, not directly towards act act of the king per se, not towards act of um, a royal figure per se. Uh, it's criticism overall. Uh, the issue related to how we are combating corruption and uh, try to like relate it to uh, criticism directly towards uh, uh, royal. Uh, this is clearly a diverting and try to uh, intimidate so that you don't question the process and the decision made by the Badan Bot.
0: What are the implications of the application of Sedition Act? Um, What is the impact on that, on freedom of expression and political dissent in Malaysia?
2: So generally, the introduction of Sedition Act in 1948 by British is to silence uh, voices from the ground, voices from the people. Uh, It is also to punish and criminalise dissenters And for the British to continue impose uh, uh, more restrictions towards uh, any demand from the people at that point of time is uh, um, mainly on the freedom of uh, speech, freedom of expression, as well as a movement towards independence. And in many other countries, uh, post independence, uh, Sedition Act has been abolished and the Sedition Act which was introduced by British here, uh, they also have abolished sedition act in britain when they are in opposition they will together with uh, other civil society campaign to abolish sedition and whenever there is a sedition is used against them they voice it out and saying that when they come to power they will abolish sedition uh, but when they are in power uh, they don't like criticism so that's a clear contradiction so hypocrisy at the same time, not only abolishing it, but they keep on using it to silence the dissenters. So if this is the case, uh, and when more restriction imposed towards uh, people, uh, those who elected them, it's definitely going to create a wave among the people um, um, feeling that they can't express towards the own, their go- the government that they elected in. So this is going to give a lot of impact towards our democracy process and also uh, freedom of speech, because freedom of speech is the key cornerstone of democracy. And democracy is depends upon active participation of the society, uh, especially in uh, giving their opinion as well as supposed to be part of the uh, decision-making process. So I think this is an another archaic law Uh, which is uh, detrimental to the democracy process in Malaysia, this sedition need to be abolished.
0: When we say abolish the Sedition Act, some members of the government has come out and say, uh, maybe we can tweak the Sedition Act so that it can no longer be applied to anybody except the royalty. Do you accept that argument or do you think the Sedition Act should just be abolished altogether?
2: so with the current government we already know uh, the issue is they keep on repeating saying that the 3r they need something to handle the 3r but actually uh, there is a provision within the penal code uh, if anything uh, we utter that may detrimental to the peace uh, of the nation uh, especially with relate to 3r it is still able to be covered under penal code uh, rather than using uh, sedition. And, uh, but what I'm seeing is using this 3R argument and silencing um, the criticism towards government and also dissent uh, opinion towards government uh, is comfortably kept in that way for the government to reduce criticism towards them. Uh, So I don't agree with the argument, but even in that case, if they say this area is still pending and they need uh, something, then why can't the government, if they are serious and they are genuine saying that only three are issue, the rest they are fine, then why can't they impose a moratorium using sedition uh, for other areas, other things, and just confined to 3R alone, but it's not the case. So so the question here is whether they are genuine using 3R argument and not confining to 3R argument, but using that argument, but also uh, using sedition um, as they want, as they like. So this is not acceptable.
0: Are there any recent trends or patterns um, when it comes to the enforcement of the Sedition Act that is particularly concerning to um, Suaram? Uh,
2: what we are seeing is the trend still stays on under Pakatan Harapan or the Unity Government. Now, uh, the case numbers more or less are the same, uh, but if you look at twenty twenty three. Uh, within the first 11 months of uh, 2023, there are already 21 investigations and three of which already led to um, court charges uh, in in 2023. So in 2022, there were 16 investigations and uh, one of which was um, uh, convicted entailing to one year prison sentence and and 5,000 fine. So uh, 21 in 23 and then uh, about 16 uh, in 22. so the, if the if you see slight increase and so so I'm seeing that there's no difference uh, uh, in terms of a usage of a Sedition act. Uh, and we also have um, some uh, high profile cases during the previous government and also with the current uh, government. It is also sort of uh, deepening the normalisation of a culture whereby the prosecution, uh, or instead of um, constructive debate and dialogue, they're using the law uh, to silence uh, the critics. So it's not the way forward what we want under the unity government or what we want from uh, members of uh, Pakatan Harapan, which previously they were together with us fighting against this sedition.
0: Before I wrap this conversation up, I want to ask you, um, because we've seen this happen maybe two, three times already, where a government uh, or a a political party or a coalition campaigns on the abolition of the Sedition Act to expand freedom of speech, when they come into power, um, there seems to be a serious lack of political will. So with all of that in mind, how can the public push to ensure that this comes true? What can the public do? How can they get involved?
2: If you look at the social media posting, if you look at the news feeds and the comments under the news feed, you can see the public in opinion against uh, the use of a sedition act uh, largely. But what more the public can do is keep on voicing out, uh, not confined to one political figure, but whenever the sedition is being used, they can still come out with um, response through online. Uh, and uh, also respond against any investigation or charges under the Sedition Act. Uh, They can come together and support the civil society's call to abolish uh, the Sedition Act. And uh, Swaram as one of the group, uh, together with other CISO, strongly opposing the use of Sedition Act or the continuous use of Sedition Act. Uh, We are campaigning abolishment of uh, Sedition Acts. Uh, they have to voice it out through to their own uh, members of parliament in their area as well so that many uh, mps will know or i think already know uh, not everyone supporting the use of sedition act largely the societies against the sedition act the question here is is it going to the death yes we also can educate many young people uh, why sedition is fundamentally violates the right of the, to, to freedom of expression and that um, disagreeable uh, sentiment should not at all amount to curtail of these fundamental rights. So I think uh, this area is also when many young people, especially uh, students in universities and uh, the programs that we are doing within the public and also the young people, they are agreeable. They kind of like, yes, the government have the responsibility To hear them out, the members of parliament that they are electing must engage with them, must uh, convey their dissatisfaction on the use of sedition to the parliament and push for the abolishment.
0: Seven, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. That was Seven Sami, Executive Director of Swaram. This conversation is also available on podcasts, so do check us out. Um, you can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on Spotify, the Apple Podcast, the BFM app, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, if you're listening to us on Spotify, do drop us a review, um, give us a follow. I would really, really appreciate it. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.